Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 19. So the two of them, that's Ruth and Naomi, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we come under it. We say that you have spoken and that it's good for us to see what you have spoken, to hear your word. And we ask that you would give us the gift of illumination, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes. And Lord, I I ask for eyes that have been blind, that have never seen the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask that you would take the blindness away. I ask for ears that have not heard your voice, that you would unstop those ears, that you would call, cause them to hear, that you would call them home. And Lord, for those of us who know you, who have been walking with you, we still need to be searched by your scriptures. We still need uh, to return to you. And it's a good thing to come home to you. So Lord, have your way in this next time. Cause us more than anything to see the goodness and glory of Jesus. We can't wait for your return, Jesus. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, So a quick recap of where we've been. Uh, We have talked so far in the story of Ruth about God's sovereignty over all things, including trials. You remember the story opens uh, with Naomi and whose sons go and marry uh, Moabite women. And then Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he dies and uh, her sons die too. And it's a tragic beginning. And there's a famine in the land and they go to Moab uh, to be able to find food. They go outside of God's promised land. We've talked about and we've started to see that God is at work to turn bitter things into sweet things that all of scripture is pointing us to Jesus. And then last week we talked about the pledging of friendship, the said, the steadfast love from Ruth to Naomi, that, that promise that where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. And nothing, not even death is, death is the only thing that can part me from you. I'm with you to the very end. And today we'll finish chapter one of Ruth. And we see Naomi and Ruth return from Moab to Bethlehem. And today is a call to return to God. The Hebrew word shub, uh, meaning return or repent, it appears 12 times in Ruth chapter 1. For the 11th and 12th time in our text today, we see it where, uh, where the text says, Naomi speaks and says, 
the Lord brought me back empty. Literally what it's saying is the Lord has caused me to return empty. And again in verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite with her. Returning to God is the force of these closing verses. To return to God, it is definitive and it is also progressive. In the Bible, specifically Ruth 1, 19 through 22, these verses declares there's no hope without returning. But we have great hope because God is at work, as we'll see in this story. So the first thing I want to talk about is that returning is progressive. Returning is progressive. Now, not in a political or social sense, uh, but in an ongoing way. It is a working out. In many ways, returning to Bethlehem for Naomi and Ruth is a returning to God. Bethlehem, if you remember, means house of bread. From the famine, they've turned and they've come back to the house of bread in the land of Israel where God wants his people to dwell. And whatever else we're going to say and see about Naomi, it is good that Naomi and Ruth have come back to Bethlehem. This is a sign of hope. Now, as soon as they come back, as soon as they arrive, they experience something uh, that we all have. And that is people sometimes say stupid, harsh things. People sometimes say completely the wrong thing. Uh, think about what you, would, what you might want to hear uh, going to your 10-year high school reunion. Think about the compliments you've heard that aren't really compliments, that leave you asking uh, or saying back to the person, thanks, I think. Um, they're trite saints. They come back and the town is stirred because it's two women coming together. What are, what are these two women doing? They have no security. They're back here. And the women come and say to Naomi, Naomi, is that you? Now, not really the thing you want to hear when you've lost your husband, when you've been through so much loss of your sons, when you've been through a famine. She's hurting, she's aching, it's obvious by her appearance, but the thing they should say for sure is not, Naomi, is that you? Now, we remember that Naomi means pleasant. So they're basically saying, your name doesn't really match. It's like coming up to a woman named Joy who's having a hard day and saying, Joy, really? It's, it's trite. It's dumb. And what, what happens with this? Well, in our lives, we know this does happen. We know it's not right. And hearing these kinds of things from other people usually brings out what's actually in our hearts. Let's survey Naomi and as we do so, we'll, we'll look at what comes from her mouth. We'll look at her eyes and what she sees, and we'll look at her heart in this scene. So first, Naomi's mouth. She responds to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back. Literally, the Lord has caused me to return empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity 
upon me. Her words have a bitter sting. They have a hard edge to them. She's using cold, impenetrable logic to defend herself. Don't call me that. Call me bitter. I'm going to shut you down before you say something hurtful to me. Yeah, I know what life situation is. She closes herself off to hurt, and she closes herself off to love. And in this, she's still lamenting to people and not fully to God, as we've seen and talked about in how, we, how God and the Bible would teach us to lament. Her assessment of what she has done and what God has done, it's a mixed bag. She owns that she chose to go away to Moab. She doesn't even mention her husband in her statement. She says, yeah, I went away to Moab, but I was full then. And yes, God has caused me to return, but empty. God brought me back, but empty. And she uses the name of God. She says, Yahweh did this. El Shaddai, the Almighty, he, he has done all these things. He has brought calamity upon me. And some of us, we, we have an inclination. We want to say, she's theologically wrong. She's got to be saying wrong things about God. God would never do that. Well, as we've talked about and seen, Naomi isn't theologically off we think of the words of Job, the, um, Job chapter one verse twenty-one. Naked I have come from my mo- naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naomi isn't saying false things about God so much as she's nearsighted and she's blind. She says, "I'm empty." I'm bitter. Why shouldn't I be when the Almighty brought this upon me? She's still ending too soon. Others of us have the inclination to say, just don't be that honest. This makes me uncomfortable. It's a downer. We, we have the mentality that we should just grin and bear it at all times. Sure, there's hard things in life, but there's more good things, surely, and we need to have hope and we need to be peppy, uh, we might say, sure, it's okay to cry, but just don't do it here. Just don't do it now. Go, go where no one can see you. We need to know Naomi's not theologically wrong, but we also need, we need to see the tears of our own Lord Jesus. To know that a nursed wound a wound that we try to take care of ourselves, it will produce bitterness. But an ignored wound, it can produce an infection. So we need to return to the Lord with our wounds. We need to remember the words of Jesus quoting Isaiah where he said, a bruised reed I won't break. A candle that's about to go out, I'm not going to blow it out. I'm going to be tender. We look at Naomi's eyes. That is what she sees and what she doesn't see. We've already said that Naomi's short-sighted and blinded by her trials. 
Remember what has just taken place in the story before this. A pledge from Ruth of undying, steadfast love. Love from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law, which at least in our culture isn't the most common thing in sitcoms. We have a common trope that in-law relationships don't work well. Not myself at this point. If you know my mother-in-law, she's great. Um, and that's, that's true. Actually true. And my father-in-law as well. I know if I say something, he'll want uh, me to mention him. So they're great. Uh, but Naomi says, with her best friend standing there, I'll ne- the one who says, I'll never leave you. I'm with you forever. Who has come to Bethlehem with her? The story begins, the two of them went, and Naomi's words are what? I'm empty. I have nothing. God has stripped me of everything. I have no husband. I have no sons. I have no future. I have nothing, and I am bitter. And Ruth stays by her side. Let's look at Naomi's heart. Naomi's heart is a mixed bag like all of ours. It's imperfect. It's bitter. But in many ways, it is towards God. It's returning. And in the midst of imperfection and bitterness, we have to acknowledge, but she's saying all of it in Bethlehem. She did put one foot in front of the other and got back to the place where God would meet with her. Now, as we read the Bible, we we often find that the Bible is actually reading us. And so as we look at Naomi, it's actually looking, it's like looking in a mirror. And whether we're hurting ourselves or we're walking with hurting people, there's questions that search us. There's things we should examine about our own hearts. With our own mouths and the words we speak, do we stop short in our pain? Do we say, this is all that will ever happen. Nothing will get better. Do the harsh words that people sometimes say, wittingly or unwittingly, do they draw out something in us that needs to be healed? Are you nursing bitterness? Are you denying it? It won't get better in either of those cases. Are you, with your eyes, blind to the areas of God's goodness in your life? Not, not trite. Not It's sunny and we live in Carpinteria, so it doesn't matter what goes on in your life. But perhaps you've been blinded to to ways God has reached out his hand in kindness towards you in the midst of all of it. Perhaps you desire a good thing and God in his wisdom that you don't get and I don't get right now has withheld it from you can you still bless him for all the good things he has given? Or are you blind? There's hope. 
Because Jesus can remove blindness. These are hard questions. They're searching questions, I know, but take heart here because we've said that returning is progressive. Naomi, she's a work in progress, unlike all of us, correct? No. Um, The return to Bethlehem, it started in verse 6. Is that surprising to you? They're going to return to Bethlehem in all those sermons we've been going through. That was the return. The outworking of bitterness, the lamenting, the imperfection, the crying out to God, the prayers that go up, it's all been part of returning to God. It's been through much lamenting, through a mostly at times bitter heart that lashes out at those who are closest to her. And we wonder as we consider that from from our distance, is God going to show Naomi kindness, forgiveness, and restoration because of the purity of her own heart? Will God forgive me of my sins because of the purity of my own repentance and heart? After I've done the same thing again, when I come back to him, will he forgive me because he sees I will never sin again? No, he forgives us because he has sworn by himself to bless his covenant people. And Naomi displays herself to be one of them in her returning to God. Do you see that? That there is something that has happened that she somehow got to Bethlehem again. Through, yes, putting a foot in front of another, but because God is at work drawing her back to himself, he forgives because of the purity of his heart. And we're forgiven not because our faith in Jesus is so great, that it's so strong, but because our Jesus, in whom our weak and imperfect faith is still growing, it's because he is great. Our still growing faith in him, who is great, is what saves us. And I want you to also notice something that is unnoticed here. Who has not spoken? Who has spoken nothing? Ruth. The one whose name uh, we take for this book. She's sworn her fidelity to Naomi. Amidst Naomi's bitter words, she stays. And if you're walking with a person who's hurting There is a time that you don't speak. You've said your words. You don't leave them in danger and trouble, but you stay by their side. You pray. You do, you exhibit, you show what Paul Miller calls love without an exit plan. Say, I already made my pledge. Your bitterness doesn't scare me. I'm not going. But from our vantage point, we're cut to the quick. Because maybe so many of us have done to God what Naomi has to Ruth. We accuse him of being nowhere, providing nothing, and taking everything. And yet he gives another day of life. 
another week of food, another paycheck comes in, another night of eating out. And it's his kindness and his long-suffering tenderness that now calls you to return, to repent. Because there is no hope without returning to him. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. The narrator of Holy Scripture speaks, and he summarizes from the view of the heavens what has happened. Naomi and Ruth have repented. They've returned from the country of Moab. And as we get an aerial view of the story, hope begins to come clear. They've gone out of the country of Moab. They're back in God's promised land. And whatever else has happened to them to get them there, this is good news. And the impetus, the force of the text is what we must urge here. And here's something to understand. In the Hebrew language, uh, you don't use synonyms when you want to uh, really uh, get a point across, right? When we want to describe how amazing something is, we use so many different words. It was amazing, spectacular, phenomenal, unbelievable, literally the best thing I've ever seen in my entire life. In Hebrew, you repeat the same word over and over again. So there's parts of the Bible where there's a deep pit, and literally in the Hebrew, it's going to say there was a pit pit because it's deep. That word shub, it's return in Hebrew, occurred 12 times, used over and over again. And what the writer of Ruth wants us to see, what the Holy Spirit-inspired text says, is there is a returning happening. And do you see it? And what does it mean for your life? There is no hope without returning to God. There is no salvation without repentance. There is no glorification without sanctification. Faith breathes. It acts. It does something. It's not dead. Do we need only to let go and let God? Is repentance only passive? Now at this point, you might be saying, are you saying you save yourself? No, by no means. But I'm saying that the new life Christ gives is life. It does something. And it, and it the sanctification process, the becoming holy is a gift of grace from God. He is at work in us, both willing and working to do what is his good pleasure. And I think we need to really renew our minds by what God has, uh, has said about sin. So let's talk about a few of these of what the Bible would say in the multiple motivations we have for returning to God. Okay? The first one is this, the folly of sin. The foolishness and folly of sin. How does the Bible in one part describe sin? Like this. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. 
It's, it's disgusting. Do you, do you want to stay there? Have you ever seen an animal do this? And you think that doesn't make sense. There's grass over there. Eat the grass. There's dog food. We can get you something else. Sin is foolishness. It's folly. There's the folly of sin. There's also the fruit of sin. Romans chapter 6, Paul's going to argue like this. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free. You were free in your vomit, but you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Sometimes we think of sin as, ah, it's the thing that feels good. It's the thing that leads to death. It's the thing that gets us no fruit. The things that we are ashamed of. And test this for yourself. What fruit were you getting when you were living as freely as you wanted? Freely in quotation marks. What was it doing for you? Was it producing goodness in your life? Did you see love and joy and peace? And patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Did you see those things? What fruit was your sin getting you? What fruit is it producing for you right now? But we don't need to only hear about the folly of sin or the fruit of sin, but we need something greater. Because we are at our core, at our core where what Jamie Smith calls, we're loving beings. We do what we love. We might think that we do what we think is best, but we examine our, our lives and we realize we do the things that we think will bring us the most joy because we love those things. And that's how God's created us. He's actually created us to love him and to find our joy in him. So we need not just to hear only about the folly and the bad fruit of sin, but we need a better love. We need, we need what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. We need to see the worthiness of Christ. Hear how Paul talks about giving up whatever it takes in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What the author of Hebrews says he's built the theological argument of how Christ is better than the sacrificial system, how he is the true and better high priest, how he is the one who can take away sin. And so he says, in view of all of that, since you're also surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Jesus, there is a better love than you have ever known on this earth. He will never leave you or forsake you. 
He does not, he does not return anger for anger. He turns his other cheek. He will never betray you. No one can love you like Jesus could love you. Who has given their life for you? Who has left the comforts of their home for you? Do you see the worthiness of Christ? So Christian, therefore, cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. Are you feeling in bondage to pornography, to alcohol, anger, gossip? You need to hear Christ came to pay the debt that you owe, to suffer the penalty for those sins. You will never suffer for those sins if you trust in him and in faith confess your sins. Bring it into the light of Christ. Trust in his forgiveness. Do whatever it takes to kill sin. Make no provision for it. All out war. Get out of Moab. I think of that great book, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, where in the very opening of the book, the main character, Christian, uh, he hears, he reads from a scroll, fly the wrath that is to come. And he, and he meets a man named Evangelist, and he says, what does this mean? And he says, he says, there's coming a judgment day, and you need to get out of the city of destruction, and you need to get to the celestial city, the heavenly city. And he says, how can I get there? And evangelist says, do you see yonder that wicked gate? Which means, do you see that gate over there, that white gate? And Christian says, no. Maybe that's you. You you don't see the end. But evangelist doesn't stop there. He says, okay, but do you see the light? And he looks and he sees the light. He says, yes. Evangelist says, go towards the light, and eventually you'll see the gate. But don't stop. Don't ever stop. And Christian, he starts to go. He leaves his house. He tries to tell others about it. His family won't go with him, and they think he's crazy. They're like, what are you thinking? Why are you making all these sacrifices and all this stuff? Just enjoy your life. Do you know what he does? He sticks his fingers in his ears and he just starts yelling, life, life, eternal life as he runs towards the light. Flee the city of destruction and run towards that celestial city. And as we walk with brothers and sisters, let's perhaps stop only saying that's hard to someone's confession of sin. Yeah. It's a bummer. Let's maybe encourage one another with Romans 8 verses 12 through 14 saying, brother, sister, you are not a debtor to sin, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit By the Spirit, not your own effort, by the Spirit, not only your own effort, but all that Christ and the Holy Spirit would give you, put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. 
Let's invite this kind of ruthless warfare on our sin and encourage one another so our hearts don't grow hard. Now, perhaps you're sitting there thinking, it's about time. It's about time you're telling people to get their act together. Do you know how much sin I see in other people's life? You need to hear, you cannot be perfected by the flesh. And the kind of heart that says that, that does not mourn at the own sin in their life, does not praise Christ that he's revealing things that are killing them, that does not give hope, you need to hear you can't be perfected by the flesh. Are you so foolish? What, what has been begun by the Spirit? Are you going to now be perfected by your own power? It's his grace at work in you. His power that you now move and you act and you do something. Radical. You cut off the internet. You're tempted to gossip. You just leave the place. You bite your tongue. You stop. You dump your alcohol. You do whatever it takes. You don't make provision for the flesh. And let us even praise our Father for his wisdom in allowing hardships that have worked for us in eternal weight of glory. It was through a variety of trials and troubles that God has brought Ruth and Naomi back. And Christopher Ashe, he says, to be brought back to Christ may hurt, but it's our only hope. this point, perhaps you're saying in your heart, you have no idea who you're talking to. You don't know what I've done or the shame of where I'm from. It's a nice plan for Christians. Well, I just tell you that Ruth returned to You see, God has always had a plan for the nations, for unbelievers, for rebels. Verse 21, the author's making the point. He says, Ruth, the Moabite, from the country of Moab. If you remember, the the origins of Moab are shameful. A country, the product of incest. The word Moab means, who's your daddy? That's what Moab means. Christ came for the sick. He came for the weary, for the burdened. For Rahab the prostitute. For Moses with all of his anger. For David with his adultery and murder. For Matthew with his extortion. For Zacchaeus with his taking advantage of the poor. Hear this. You must repent of your sin and come to Jesus. You must get out of Moab and come to Bethlehem. But this isn't just a call for moral reform. This is the Father's call from God himself to come. How does Ruth return to Bethlehem? How does this pagan Moabite outsider return home to a home she was not born in, has not lived in, knew not? 
Ruth wasn't just a stranger to Israel. She was an enemy of Israel by her ethnic heritage. How can a sinner come home to the holy habitation of heaven with God? Not by first trying really hard. Not by changing their appearance. Not by buying something at the bookstore. But because Jesus left his home to make rebels sons and daughters. By shedding his blood for their sin. It is by God unstopping deaf ears, opening blind eyes, causing men and women to be born again. God speaks and something happens. You return home to me, he says. And when he speaks, things happen. Hear the call of God. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The book of Isaiah, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We don't only return to God by killing sin. It's not only turn away from these things, but by coming to him. By meeting him in the means of grace he has provided for us. So do you feel dry, weary, cracked in your soul? Cry out to him in prayer. Open up your Bible and read it. Memorize a psalm and pray it to him. Don't stop meeting with believers. Don't stop coming to church. Go to the places where God has promised, I will meet you there. Okay, I think I have a little puppy um, named Gandalf. Uh, He's a little mini golden doodle. And I think of Gandalf when he's hungry. Gandalf when he's hungry. Now, do you know what Gandalf doesn't do when he's hungry? He doesn't just like lay down in his crate and say, I'm sure Travis is going to feed me someday. And I really trust him when he's going to feed me. Uh, That's true. I am going to feed him. But do you know what he does? He runs over to the place where he gets fed and he jumps and he barks and he moves around. He's like, do you see me over here? And even when I have the food just above him, he's jumping as high as he can to try to get some of it. He goes to a place where the food is going to be and he waits So are you in a dry season? Okay, I get that that happens. Are you going to the place where when God does come, you're going to meet him there? When he lets the rain come down, there will be a waterfall. Where are those places? In his word, in prayer, by not neglecting the meeting of believers together, and letting our hearts be hardened, but by meeting together and not hardening our hearts, hearing his word preached. God has given us means of grace. And those means of grace, hear this, they ultimately get us to God himself. That is why we go there. 
Because the greatest gift isn't knowledge of the Bible. It's not a rich and robust prayer life. It's not being a spiritual giant. It's walking with the God of the universe. We have said there's no hope without returning. But I should say too at this point, there is no returning without hope. Look at God's return. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This sentence is as pregnant with hope as Ruth's stomach one day will be. Whatever else has happened, they have come to the house of bread. And the story that began with famine in an enemy land has led to the land of promise at the beginning of barley harvest. With God, there is always hope. And oh, get out of Moab. Come to Bethlehem. And you know what? There will be trials in Bethlehem, but God will be there. And I wonder at this point, Naomi, could you possibly know in the midst of your emptiness and barrenness that God was working the ground to produce another season of barley? All along, God was causing all things to hold together and bring another season of food and crops. But the hope of returning to God is not simply because there we find the stuff we need. Barley, husbands, families. The hope of Bethlehem is so much better. It's the place where one day God himself would return for his people. Jesus, born in a humble manger in the town of Bethlehem. God returning to win back rebels. Bethlehem gets us to God himself. And there we find our deepest need. There we find the love we've always been looking for. The hope that can raise from the dead. The healing that isn't only confined to this life. And one day, he will return Again, here. So there's hope with God. If God in his love has caused you to return to him, if you return to him, no trial can separate you from his love. Not even death will part you. You will live again with him. And one day he's coming back to make all things new. The return of our Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. So church, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. 
as the spring rains that water the earth. Let's pray. Lord, our hope is not in our returning, but in our returning to you. Not in what we will in ourselves, but what you are at work in us doing to will and work a return to you. And so God, I ask for returning to you now. I ask that no matter what is going on in our life, we would know the hope of your return. Now we would draw near to you right now. Lord, the needs of your people are many, but you know every single one of them in this week and through all of eternity, you have kept a bottle of every tear that has ever been shed. Not one of our prayers is wasted but we need to remember and know again your steadfast love that does not leave us. Thank you that you have pledged by yourself that not even death would part us. Cause us to get out of Moab, to put to death the things which are killing us. Let us see the worthiness and greatness of Christ greater love greater bread the greater provision would you minister to your people now would we bless your name whatever is happening right now would we bless the name of the Lord name of the Father Son Holy Spirit